Joyce Ann Brown only learned she was a murder suspect when she read about it in the paper. That's not a good place to find out you're wanted for murder, is it? Uh, Two days earlier, two women had robbed a fur coat store and killed the owner before fleeing in their rental car. The wife of the owner survived the robbery. When the suspect's abandoned vehicle was found, the rental contract revealed the name Joyce Ann Brown. And since Joyce Ann Brown had an arrest record for prostitution, people showed her photo to the wife of the store owner. And she identified her as one of the robbers. Brown had a credible ally on the day of the crime, so she just willingly turned herself into police, hoping to convince them it was nothing more than a case of mistaken identity. However, she was charged with murder and aggravated robbery and received a sentence of 25 years to life. The Joyce Ann Brown who rented the car was actually a totally unrelated Denver woman. She lent the car to her friend, and evidence. Uh, her friend's name was Renee Taylor, and evidence in Taylor's apartment indicated her as the actual culprit. But authorities remain convinced that the wrong Joyce Ann Brown was Taylor's accomplice. Listen to this. Even after Taylor was arrested and said the arrested Brown was not involved at all, the state refused to acknowledge their mistake. And so Joyce Ann Brown remained in prison for nine years until 1989 when the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals finally set aside her conviction. And so that story represents the extreme end of damage that a case of mistaken identity can have on a person's life. And while not as sensational, I can promise you there is also the potential for enormous damage to the Christian trying to live out their everyday life with a case of mistaken identity, not understanding who they are in Christ and what that means and all that's ascribed under that title to their life. They're walking through life with a spiritual identity crisis. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians. We're starting a new series uh, through the book of Ephesians the last several weeks, and we're calling this series uh, Reflect. And the reason we're calling this series Reflect is because in Ephesians, uh, we're going to look in chapters 1 through 3 and kind of understand who we are in Christ and and who God is and what God has done to redeem us in chapters 1 through 3 and understand our new identity and what that means. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says all of this new identity in the first three chapters, uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, this is what it looks like to live out of a new identity. This is what that looks like in interacting with the world around you. This is what that looks like. That's chapter 4. This is what that looks like in the context of a marriage, chapter 5. This is what that looks like as a parent, chapter 6. This is what that looks like as an employee, chapter 6. And so, so all the things we are in Christ. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, we're going to look at what does that look like in chapters 4, 5, and 6. What does it look like to reflect the truth that I'm in Christ in my everyday life? Ephesians chapter 5, 1 is a key verse uh, in this book, and it says this, Be imitators of God, understand His character, and then reflect it in the relationships in the world around you. And So I hope that if you've been listening to me teach uh, all five and a half, almost six years, that I've been here, you have come to know a certain thing in studying the Bible, and that is this, is that before you can ever understand a text, you have to first understand the context. And so as we're beginning a study of a new book this morning, let me give you a little background context on the book of Ephesians. Uh, The author of the book of Ephesians is Apostle Paul. And you're thinking, of course it is, right? Like, if you don't know an answer in church, it's usually one of two things. It's usually Jesus or Paul, right? And so Paul uh, was the human author the Holy Spirit worked through 
uh, to pen the book of Ephesians. Paul probably authored uh, at least one of 13 books of the New Testament. Uh, some credit him as the author of Hebrews because that's kind of a mystery. So, so maybe even 14 books of the Bible. Paul wrote Ephesians while imprisoned uh, in Rome sometime between the years 60 and 62 uh, AD. Now, a lot of Paul's writings in the New Testament are corrective in nature. Uh, there is a theological heresy that's plaguing the church. Uh, Paul was a missionary. Paul went around winning people to Christ and planting churches. And so what happened is uh, Paul's there to kind of run the show. And Paul would establish leaders and elders and pastors and all those things. And then Paul would go to the next town and plant a church. But since these were all baby Christians at the place he left, it wasn't really hard for them to slip into theological or moral error. And so often what you see in the New Testament is Paul writing back to these churches going, hey, I've only been gone a little bit and you're already blowing it. Like if you read the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, it's everything that could go wrong in a church. I saw a guy teach the book of 1 Corinthians and the title of his series was called Jacked Up. All right. And so, so a lot of Paul's writing is like corrective in nature. However, uh, this is not the case in Ephesians. It's kind of unique. Uh, Paul's not writing to address some theological heresy. Paul's not writing to address a sin issue that they're not willing to address. Paul is writing uh, to kind of help them. It's preventative in in nature uh, to protect them against future problems by encouraging them to mature in their faith, to help them understand you're no longer under the law. You're now in Christ, and this is what that means, and this is what that changes, and this is what it looks like to live out of that truth in your everyday life and relationships. And so this is a fascinating book. I love uh, the book of Ephesians. So the outline of the book uh, is incredibly easy. So, so if you ever want to know how the book of Ephesians breaks apart, super easy. Chapters 1 through 3, theological. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, practical. That's what that looks like. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that what some of you just heard is uh, I can go to sleep for the next few chapters, and I'm going to set my alarm for chapter 4, Right? And so we're going to get into some deep waters in chapters 1 through 3. But I promise you, I will not talk over your heads. I will not give you terms that we don't explain. And I will help you understand how that truth, that theology, actually makes a difference in your everyday life. Because if theology is true, it should show up in your life. Okay? Now, let me also give a little disclaimer. So, in the first service... Uh, we're walking through this text, and I've got four points this morning walking through. And so in the first service, I just got through point one, and I felt kind of the Holy Spirit just saying, stop, that's, let's just stop right here, and let's just, let's just sit, sit here with this truth. And so they got out like a little early, and so, so I, don't, I, don't, I don't manufacture what the Spirit's doing. I try to respond to it. So I don't know if we're going to get through the whole text or not. Now, some of you are going, you're praying to the Spirit right now. So do it again, Lord. Right? Like, like, do it again, right? And then some of you are going, preach the whole thing. We love Christ. Amen? No. So, so I, we may get through the whole passage this morning. We may get one, and I, I don't know. So, but we're going to start off today in uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And this is kind of under that uh, theological, who are we uh, in Christ? And once I understand that, it gives me a new identity. See, see, here's the thing. When God saves us, he doesn't just stamp our ticket to heaven. The gospel is not about getting people into heaven. The gospel is about giving people a new identity until they get there. 
And that is a radically different thing. You see, some people think I'm saved and, and my life is, is bound by all these things. And, and then finally, when I get to heaven, finally I'll get some joy in my life. No, no, listen. The gospel is for transforming us to live now until we get to heaven. So, so all the things that God has promised in Christ are available now. They're just that much more on the other side of eternity. And so that, that is what chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about. He says, hey, listen, uh, you don't have to wait to, to get to heaven to understand the benefits of being in Christ and what that means. And so that's what he's going to talk about here in chapter 1. Matter of fact, uh, in these 12 verses, verses 3 down through verse 14, in, in these verses, seven times... In 12 verses, he uses the phrase, in him or in Christ. And so this first passage, there's no question what it's about. He's trying to teach these believers, this is what it means to be in Christ, and this is what difference that makes when you're living your life. And so, so, so why is it important to understand our true identity in Christ? Why is it such a tragedy to walk around with a case of mistaken identity as a follower of Jesus Christ? Let me give you some scenarios. This is just personal experience uh, of some mistaken identities that, that people can walk around with. And so some people can really be saved and know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him, but, but they don't live out of that identity. Like for them, that, that's, that's for after you die. That's, like what, that's good for when you get to heaven. But until then, I'm living with some a mistaken identity, and it causes all kinds of dysfunction in my life. And so let me give you some cases of mistaken identity. When a person doesn't understand the truth of being in Christ and how that changes things and how I go about the world and how I live my life, let me give you some mistaken identities that, that people who are really saved go through their life walking, walking through. Mistaken identity number one is I am my career. It's not hard that when you spend a large amount of your time in your vocation, it's not hard to allow that to begin to identify who you are. And listen, our culture reinforces that. What's one of the first things now? I told you this before. I'm not shy by any means, but I'm, I'm a lot more, I'm an introvert. I'm a professional extrovert, all right? And so I was on a plane once again this week, and I'm praying on a plane, not that it would land safely, not that we'd take off. I'm praying that no one would engage me in conversation, all right? And so I do what I always do. Got out a huge, like the biggest Bible I could find and opened it up really wide, right? But I could hear the people next to me. You know how they start the conversation? How they always start it. So what do you do for a living? Right? I mean, that's what our culture says. And, and so if we're not careful, we spend a lot of time there. We spend a lot of our education trying to get there. Uh, a lot of our conversations introductory are, so what do you do for a living? It's not hard to uh, begin to have a mistaken identity and think that you are your career. Now, the problem with that is this. You become a slave to approval. You, you become a slave to performance and achievement and promotion and raises and accolades and, and, and assignments and all those kinds of things. If your identity is in your career, and, and God forbid, if you should lose your career, then you totally lose your identity. And guys are a lot more susceptible to this. They asked, uh, sociology did a survey, they asked men, they said, what's the greatest uh, tragedy that could happen in your life apart from you know, some, some tragic death or something? And men said, uh, loss of job. And they interviewed women, they asked women the same thing. They asked women, they said, what would be the tragedy? And women said, loss of home stability. And so what that means is that women would rather live in a cardboard box with their families than anything else. And so if you ever wonder, are women smarter? The answer is yes, all right? And so mistaken identity number one, I am my career. Mistaken identity number two, I am my sin. Now that's the lie that, that shame tells us. The lie that shame tells us is the worst thing you've ever done is also the truest thing about you. 
And some people know that the truth, that, that positionally speaking, they're forgiven. However, uh, their sin was so great and so grievous and it's affected so many people that even though they're going to heaven, until they get there, they have to live with the weight of their sin, always constantly defining them and dogging them. And so shame is the motivating factor in their life, even though that sin has been forgiven. Mistaken identity number two is I'm a sin. Mistaken identity number three, uh, I am the sin that someone else committed against me. This is a hard to work through. I've counseled hundreds of people. This is a hard to work through that when someone walks through abuse, whether it's physical or sexual or mental or emotional or spiritual abuse, all those kinds of things, what happens is abuse uh, causes someone to devalue themselves and say, listen, I deserve that or I had a part in that or, or if someone would do that to me, then that must be all that I'm worth. And they begin to operate out of the mistaken identity that I am the sin that someone else committed against me. That's a mistaken identity. Mistaken identity number four. Uh, I am my last name. For some of you, uh, you had this experience. I remember uh, having this experience in school. And uh, so, so I had an older brother, and I'm just going to be nice. He was a little ornery, all right? And so, uh, so he's several years older than me. I'm the baby. And so uh, if you ever wonder, a baby's the favorite, they're like, yes, right? Like once your parent has the perfect child, they just stop. And so that's how that works, if you're wondering. And so I got to school, and my brother who had preceded me, I remember sitting in class and the teacher reading our name and then looking up and saying, are you so-and-so's brother? And I said, no, I am not. Right? I just lied. I didn't know. Anybody else have that experience in school? How many of you were that sibling? that You were like that person, right? And so for some of you, you've spent, in all seriousness, some of your life trying to uh, live out of the mistaken identity of your last name. And for some of you, it's a great last name. And there's lots of achievement in your family. And there's lots of pressure and expectations placed on you by your parents or your family around you. And so you're, you're just always trying to live up to this last name. And it's all this artificial pressure. And it gives you mistaken identity. Some of you are trying to escape a last name. There's all kinds of bad stories and bad people in your family tree. And so you're always just trying to rise above that, always wondering, is that holding me back and those kinds of things. And so some of you uh, are mistaken identity of the, your last name is all defines of who you are. And the last mistaken identity I've walked across is uh, I am my achievements. I'm what I've accumulated. I'm what I've you know, uh, stored up. I'm what I, you know, the toys I've collected. Just you know, I am my zip code. I'm the street I live on. Just whatever, fill in the blank. All this kind of nothing wrong with those things. But when those things begin to define my life, all of a sudden I start living out of a case of mistaken identity. And I get in the trap of the danger of performance. That God and those people around me only love me because of what I can produce. Can I just tell you this? God's love for you will never be increased by anything you achieve. Now, here's the good news. God's love for you will never be diminished by anything you do wrong. Do you understand that? The love of God is, or is unconditional and it is perfectly consistent. And so there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you will ever do to make God love you less. That's why it's called grace. And so you can see, can, can you just imagine all the dysfunction that can happen, all the brokenness in someone's life if they begin to operate out of one of those mistaken identities. And we see it in people all around us. The problem is we don't see it in the mirror. Like we can look at other people and go, oh yeah, they let their career define them. Oh yeah, they let their sin define them. Oh yeah, their, their last name defines them. But we, we see that all in other people, but we never see it in the mirror. And it causes all kinds of brokenness in our lives. And we're totally blind to it. And so what's the answer to that? The answer to that is to no longer define myself by any of these false identity markers. The answer is to define myself the way God defines me once I'm in Jesus Christ. All right? And so that's what we're going to look. So if you're excited this morning, say amen. All right. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We may get through one point. We may get through four points. We may be here ten minutes. We may be here for two hours for the glory of God. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so right off, chapter 3 is just kind of wading out in the shallow water. And, hey, guys, good to be here, and God's done so much for you. And then there's a drop-off theologically. He moves right into some deep waters in verse 4, right? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him, there's that phrase yet again, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of fullness of times, now let me pause for a minute because that's a big theological word but it has a pretty simple meaning. When someone talks about dispensations or someone would describe their theology as dispensational, let me tell you what a dispensation is. It's a certain season where God dealt with a particular people a particular way. And so there's lots of dispensations you could walk through. Let me make it as easy as I can on the most broadest terms. So God and his relationship with the nation of Israel and how he led them and how, he, uh, how the law was a part of leading them, that was the dispensation under the law. Those of us under grace in the new covenant, God is dealing with us on the basis of grace. And so that's a different dispensation of time. So it's a big word, a lot of confusion. That's all it means is the way that God dealt with people during a certain season, okay? And so going on, uh, verse 10, the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. There it is again. Verse 11, here it is again. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of his glory. Here it is again, verse 13. In him uh, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, this is a great truth, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of the glory. Now listen, you read through that, that, that is a mouthful, right? There, there's a lot of big words, there's a lot of confusing words, and, and so here's the word. Uh, raise your hand this morning if you're a grammar Nazi. Like you just cannot stand when someone uses uh, bad, bad, like anybody a grammar Nazi in here? There, there's a couple of you. Uh, listen, I ain't, all right? But here's what I do know in Ephesians chapter 1. In the Greek, in the original language, this is one continuous run-on sentence. Like, like it is one, like Paul is, Paul just, you know, getting this out. He's so excited. He wants them to finally understand uh, who they are in Jesus Christ. It just one continuous run on sentence uh, in the Greek. And so Paul's so excited because uh, theologically what he's saying here in verses 1 through 6 is the Father blesses us. In verses 7 through 12, the Son saves us. In verses 13 and 14, he said, not only that, the Spirit seals us. And he's so excited, he just, this is one big sin, just kind of spewing this out there. And so that's the theology of this passage. Uh, but practically speaking, I want us to understand, so, so what difference does that make? Like I get that, that, that seven times in 13 verses, he says either in him or in Christ. And so, so anytime something's repeated in scripture a lot, it, that means it's a big deal. It's the whole point of that passage. And so I understand he's trying to help them understand and help us understand what it means to be in Jesus Christ, but, but what difference does that make? That theology of being in Christ and union with Christ, 
What difference does that make in the, in the day-to-day life and how I view my identity once I'm in Jesus Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let me give you four descriptors, and we may get through one, we may get through two, uh, we may get through four. I may add three. I don't know, just how the Spirit leads. Amen? All right, so here we are in Him. First thing I want you to see is this. In Him, we are chosen. We are chosen. Uh, in verses 3 through 6, there are a lot of terms that cause a lot of theological confusion. There's words like chosen. There's words like adoption. There's words like uh, predestination. So some of you, if you believe that God of his own sovereign will chooses some for salvation at the exclusion of others, you're Calvinist. And if you're here and you think that, uh, that man chooses God totally of his own free will, nothing about, you know, God, listen, you're an Arminianist. If you have no idea uh, and the whole conversation makes you nervous, you're a Baptist, all right? That's how this whole thing shakes out. And so let me give you some insight in walking through this this morning. And, and, uh, but let me also, before I get there, let me just tell you why I don't spend a ton of time on this discussion. It's not because I don't understand it. Listen, I've got an undergraduate and a graduate degree in theology. I've had this conversation a couple of times, okay? And so, but here's what it is. When I'm talking uh, and leading a church and, and, and challenging people to live out in their faith, the reality is no matter which side of that spectrum you land on, you're high on the sovereignty of God and salvation, you're high on the free will of man, or again, you're somewhere in between God initiates, but man responds, all that kind of stuff. Listen, no matter where you land on that spectrum, do you understand something? Practically speaking, it doesn't change your responsibility one single bit to share the gospel with those who do not know Jesus Christ. And so while people sit in Bible studies and debate this until no end and get mad at each other and split churches over it, I promise you the church of Jesus Christ would be a lot stronger off if we would worry less or not so passionate about how it works as just getting out there and sharing the gospel. I don't have to know what God does and what I do. I just got to know what it looks like to be obedient and share my faith. And so over and over churches have lost total sight of that. But the reality is that some people cannot move past this issue. I've seen churches split over this. I've seen people abandon their faith over this issue. I know of people, uh, interestingly, who would rather be a communist than a Calvinist. But when pressed on it, they're not sharing their faith with anyone. In other words, they're absolutely, militantly, angrily convinced that salvation is available to anyone, but they're not sharing with anyone. Does that make sense? Like, I believe that everyone could be saved, but I'm not going to share with anyone. And there's this total disconnect that's, that's going on. And so the reality is you cannot rip the doctrine of election out of the Bible. It's all over the Scripture. What is incredibly difficult, I'm going to show you why this is so hard to reconcile uh, this, this truth and totally understand it, why people have been debating on it for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and they'll continue to debate about all of those things. And so let me tell you why this is so hard to understand. Number one, I want you to look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, "...having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself." Uh, according to the good pleasure of his will. So in verse 4, he talks about choosing people, inviting people into salvation. Verse 5, he talks about the process that happens. He, here's the thing that, that I don't know. Here's the thing that you don't know. And I know that some of you, uh, you know, you've got this totally figured out. And I, 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 like, I totally understand that, right? But here's what I have yet to figure out. What I have yet to figure out was, was in verse 5, what was the motive of the good pleasure of his will? Like, what, like, why God and His will, why, why, did he, why did He do that? Why does He invite people into a relationship with Him? What motivates Him? Now, some of you would argue because He's God and He felt like it, right? Some would say, well, because God in His divine foreknowledge, God knew that those who, uh, in His foreknowledge, would respond in faith to His invitation, so it pleased Him to make the offer of salvation. 
And, and the reality is, those two groups, no matter where you live that, end up hating each other in Jesus' name for his glory. Have you noticed that? There was even a major disunity in this church uh, prior to my arrival over this issue. Uh, when I, some of you don't know this, but when I interviewed here, it was about a, it was about a seven or eight year process when I'm walking through the interview kind of season, right? And uh, so after all that time, as those several months, after all that time and coming in the first time I public questions in front of the church, the very first question someone asked me was related to this issue. And so I began to, I said, well, I said, I, there's an issue, so let me t- t- tell you some things we know, let me tell you what I think is some mystery. And I asked him, I said, but how does that change your responsibility to share the gospel no matter where you land? And nobody said anything, right? And I was like, yeah, right. Anyway, <laughs> here's what I don't know. I don't know the motive of God's heart. I don't know why God offers salvation to people. I know what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach uh, double predestination where God chooses people for damnation. The Bible never anywhere ever teaches that. What people say is this. What they say is that has to be a logical conclusion. Yes, from your finite understanding, God, if God had to operate within the bounds of your understanding, I understand that, but God is infinite. And so the thing that, that I don't know is what was the motive that pleased God to, to, to invite me into a relationship with him. I don't know that. Now listen, some of you, that drives you nuts. If you're here and that's your personality, like if you're here, and I just say this teasingly so don't get mad, all right? If you're here and you're an engineer, you're going to lose your mind, right? Like because your job is to figure, is solve it. Here's the reality. Can I just tell you this? There are some things in the Bible, in God's economy, that you will never understand on this side of eternity. And for some of you, that frustrates you. Can I just tell you, instead of leading to frustration, what it does to me, it leads me to awe and worship. As a tangible reminder, God, you are so much bigger than me. God, these are two parallel tracks running down sovereignty and the free will of man. And yes, you're sovereign, God, and we see that. And yes, you initiate salvation, but at the same time, you give me the ability to make real choices with real consequences. Somewhere there's parallel tracks intersect, and I don't know where that's at. But you know this, the Bible actually speaks to the, the mystery of God and the motive of God on these types of things. You should write this down. Every time that you get into a theological discussion that, that you cannot reconcile or cannot understand or whatever, and this is one of them, you should write this down. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, listen to this. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. Listen, here it is. How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways how impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways and what that means is that there are some things in the economy of God that you and I will totally never fully understand but the good news is that should lead me to worship not frustration the other good news is I don't have to wonder what obedience looks like in sharing my faith there's no mystery at all in that and so here's my contention for every single church wrestling with this issue. We, we honestly don't wrestle with it. But here's my contention. Let's be a church that is more passionate about the tragedy that people are going to hell than the debate as to why that is. That's a good place for an amen. You missed it. So let me say it again. Let's be a church that is more passionate about the tragedy that people are going to hell than to the debate as to why that is. And so if you're a Calvinist, you're welcome here. If you're an Arminianist, you're welcome here. If you're divisive in how you express your view, then don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you. Amen? I don't know if you can say it in the pulpit. I just did. Write that down. I'll be on YouTube later this afternoon. Let me show you another reason this is so hard to understand. Look at verse 4 again. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now that phrase, before the foundation of the world, that also at times theologians refer to that as eternity past. Let me tell you the problem with referring to things from eternity past. What you're doing is you're ascribing a timeline from the perspective of those who exist in the realm of time and space as finite beings. God is infinite. God exists outside the realm of time and space. And so for God, the choosing of salvation, all that kind of stuff, listen, it's all in the present tense with God. God exists. There is no such thing as eternity past with an infinite being. God exists beyond time and space. And so it's all in the present tense of God. So these are incredibly hard things to understand. But but again, there are some things we can easily understand. One, I'm to share my faith. I don't have to figure out about winning the people to Christ their own free will or I'm discovering those that God's already chosen for salvation. I'm to share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus Christ faithfully and passionately. Two, the loving thing about God is not that he invites everyone to salvation. The loving thing about God is he lets any of us be saved in light of how sinful we really are. And three, and this is really important, I've already stated this, when you can't understand something or reconcile something easily, don't let it lead to frustration, let it lead to worship. Let it be a tangible reminder that God is so far beyond your comprehension. And the God you can't even understand how he saved you, that God, that, the God is who's that big you can't even define. That's the God who reached down your sin and rescued you. That's the God who placed you in his son, Jesus Christ. And so he says, listen, there's a, there's, a, there's a great mystery here. He talks about in chapter 9, the mystery was, I'm going to put Jews and Gentiles together, united in Jesus Christ, incredible, and I'm going to use the church to redeem the world and take the gospel to the nations. So, so what does that mean, practically speaking? That, listen, when I understand that God has invited me to be a part of his team, I don't know why or how or any of those kinds of things, but God has allowed me to be a part of his team called the church. Here's what that means. You, you are no longer insignificant. You no longer have to wonder, does your life have purpose? You no longer have to worry. Listen, if you grew up and, and you never felt noticed or, you know, listen, you were never chosen for a team, you got you know, picked last at kickball and that's still, like you can't move past that, right? Now, many of you would find this hard to believe, but I used to play a lot of basketball and I was actually the 95 SWBL Player of the Year. And some of you are like, what is that league? And so SWBL stands for Slow White Boys League. That's what that stands for, all right? And I always got picked first at open gym, Always. And it's a few years ago, my nephew said, hey, why don't you come to open gym with us? And I was, I don't know, 50, I don't know, 80 pounds past my playing weight. And so I go into open gym and I'm like, and, and I, I don't get chose first, or I don't get chose second, I get chose third. I get down to like the bottom and finally one of the guys said, I'll take the big guy. I said, amen. <laughs> I beat those kids to death in the post. Let me just tell you that. And some of you not feeling accepted or wanted or chosen goes way, 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 way beyond kickball. I'll give you some good news. If God's team is the only team you ever got picked for, it's the only team you ever need to be on. You, you, you never have to wonder if, you're, if you have value. You never have to wonder if you have purpose. Listen, you've been placed on the greatest team in all of history. You've been a part of giving the greatest assignment in all of history to take the gospel to the nations. And, and the reality is your life has purpose and matter. And your life will make a difference far, far beyond eternity. And so God deemed you sufficient enough to put on his team. So don't you ever go walking around in the case of mistaken identity saying that your life doesn't matter. Because listen, it mattered so much to God that God put you on the greatest team ever assembled called the church. And God gave you, trusted you with the greatest assignment ever given to take the gospel to the nations. Your life matters. That's what all that theology means. 
That, all that deep theology, that, that's what that means for real life, all right? Well, I'm going to go on and preach a little bit longer. And so, here's, so, number one, I've been chosen. I don't have to understand that works. I just know that God has chosen me. And, and so, secondly, uh, I have been redeemed. I've been redeemed. You ever looked at the circumstance of your life and thought this? God, why are you punishing me? You ever thought that? Like, like surely, like you, you know, or you got around some friends, like Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? Job's life was totally in shambles. You know what the advice was? You must have done something wrong. And some of you have felt that way. God, why are you punishing me? We've all felt that. But the reality is this, when I understand who I am in Jesus Christ, I have to come to the place of full confidence where I can no longer doubt in the dark what God has revealed in the light, that once I'm in Christ, God no longer punishes me for my sins because Christ bore all the punishment for me on the cross. You say, where do you see that at? Look at verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption. What does that mean? It means I've been redeemed from the penalty of my sins. That at that point, once I've been redeemed, I'm no longer deserving of punishment. Why? Because Christ bore it on my behalf. And his blood did that. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God, not the children of God. It's true that we, listen now, we do reap what we sow. We do absolutely, listen, we reap what we sow. I, I cannot tell you how many times someone said, oh, God's punishing me. I said, are you in Christ? Yes, I've been saved a long time. I said, well, whoa, whoa, you got bad theology. God's not punishing you. Yeah, but these things keep happening. I said, well, tell me why they keep happening. And uh, so many times they've said, why is God doing this to me? And I've had to answer honestly in a much, much nicer pastoral way. Uh, it's because you keep doing dumb stuff. That's why, all right? The reality is this is not a trial. This is a consequence for doing dumb things. And grace doesn't eliminate consequences. Now you say, what about Hebrews? Because Hebrews says that God disciplined every son whom he receives. That's true. But that discipline in the original language is described as training in righteousness. You say, well, what difference does that make? Because the motive is redemption, not punitive anger from an angry God. Totally different motive. But when you don't understand the truth that God doesn't punish you for your sins once you're in Christ, you're going to be plagued by mistaken identity, which is constantly going to cause you to believe that what Christ did for you on the cross must have not been enough. And so therefore, God is exacting payment from your life. That's why your life is so hard. Let me settle this issue once and for all, and then we'll be done today, halfway through. I want to say something that you've heard a thousand times. But I've counseled enough people in the last 15 years to know that while they know it's true intellectually, they don't understand it practically because I've watched their life. And so here's what I want you to understand. In Christ, your sins have been paid for. And some of you have done some really sinful things in your life both before you were saved and after you were saved. Things that if anyone ever found out, you feel like you would be ruined. Some of you did some things this weekend you hope no one finds out about. And some of you are thinking, he knows. <laughs> I don't, but the one who does looked at it through the blood of Jesus Christ and said, it's already forgiven. And God calls for repentance for those sins. God calls you to go and sin no more. And his forgiveness does not always remove the consequences, but you have been redeemed from the penalty of your sins once you're in Christ. And so the reality is simply this. 
You are no longer being punished for your sins. You've been redeemed for the penalty of your sins. Even the ones you hope no one ever finds out about, once you're in Christ, you have been redeemed from the penalty. God is not exacting payment on your life over your past sins. If you want me to preach on, say amen. Some of you aren't sure. Two things, really, really quick. So one, I'm chosen. I don't understand that, but I don't have to understand to get the benefit from it. Number two, I'm redeemed from the penalty of my sins once I'm in him. Number three, I am rich. Some of you are thinking, no, I'm not. But you have a wealth that cannot be contained within the small confines of planet Earth once you're in Christ. Look at verse 11. What's it say? In him we also have obtained an inheritance so big that the Earth can't contain it. And so every physical want you have, every spiritual need you have, will finally be provided in the inheritance called heaven. All your struggle against sin, gone. All the physical needs you have, totally gone. So in him you're rich, lastly. And I know I'm not expounding this for the sake of time. Lastly, number four, you are secure. Some of you, insecurity is the driving force of your life. And it spills over into your spiritual lives, always wondering, am I saved, am I not saved? Am I good with God? Am I not good with God? Did he see what I did last night? Like, like, right? Some of you, that's the driving force of your life. Some of you, if you're honest this morning, when someone said, are you going to heaven when you die? You would say, sure hope so. Can I tell you that once you're in Christ, you no longer have to hope so, you can know so. You say, where's that at? Look at verses 13 and 14. What's he say? In him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having believed... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now listen to this. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Now now listen. That inheritance we described in verse 11, what guarantees it? Like once I'm in Christ and it's mine, what guarantees that it stays mine? Is it my works, my good effort, I'm keeping it mine in the deal? Verses 13 and 14 says, no, it's not you who's the guarantee of that inheritance. It's the Spirit of God. And so if your salvation fails, that means the Spirit of God failed. Never wondering, can I sin in such a way that God will ever kick me out of the family? I'm chosen, I'm redeemed, I'm rich, and I'm secure. What else do you want in life? You see, everything you've ever wanted and everything you've ever needed in your life is found in Him. In Him. Would you bow your heads this morning, please? Some of you are here this morning and you can't add those two little words to describe your life in Him. You believe in Jesus, you believe that He died on the cross, but you've never placed your personal faith in Him. You've never began a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Can I tell you this morning that when God comes, the greatest place you can ever be found is in Him. Can I tell you this morning that everything you've ever wanted in your life is found in Him? And so right where you're at this morning, you don't have to stand up, you don't have to come forward, you don't have to join a church, you don't have to get baptized. Right in your very seat this morning, you can be saved. You can find hope and salvation in Him this morning. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ right now by faith? Confess your sins and receive Him by faith as your Lord and Savior today. You'll be saved right where you're at this morning. I wonder if there's 
those in the room this morning who are truly saved. But if you're honest this morning, you're living with a case of mistaken identity. Your life could be defined as an identity crisis. You know you've been saved and forgiven, but for whatever reason, your life doesn't reflect that. Your identity is not found in Him. It's found in all kinds of these other things. Would you just lift up your hand and say, say, Pastor, that is me. If I'm honest, I don't look at myself in Christ. I look at myself through the lens of all these other things. Amen. Anybody else? Lift up your hand and say, that's me. I'm struggling with a case of mistaken identity. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. I want to pray for you if you raised your hand this morning. God, I pray for those who raised their hand today. And here's my prayer. I pray that when they leave today, they wouldn't walk out of here knowing some things. They would walk out of here believing some things about what it means to be in Christ. God, I pray for those who raise their hand that you would free them from the burden of pleasing other people. I pray that you would free them from the burden of of the shame of their sin that's already been forgiven. God, I pray that you would free them from the burden that says they're still paying for sins. I pray that you would free them from the burden that's been constantly haunting their whole life, saying you have no value. You're not wanted. You've never been chosen or accepted. That God, when they leave this place today, the defining force of their life is not what someone said about them, but what you have declared about them in Him. So, Father, I pray today that when we leave here, we would leave today not informed. We would leave today changed. And we would realize that the gospel doesn't just get us to heaven. It gives us a new identity until we get there. And we say thank you. We are humbled by your grace. All of it in in his name. Amen.